Well, you know, we, we sang a little bit ago, um, uh, Be Thou My Vision. That's, some of you may know, most don't. Th that is our family song. We chose that as, as it was sung the night we were sent off from uh, uh, the regular Navy commission. I'd left that behind in, in Annapolis and headed, uh, after serving 10 years active duty, I was heading to seminary. I was still in reserve, but that was a burning bridges time. And uh, as uh, the congregation sent us forth, they, they sang that hymn, and we adopted it as a family ever since. We only sing four verses here, but there are five. Oh, that's another. Um, but the point is that uh, that hymn, not the tune, the tune is only... Uh, oh, maybe 700 years old or so, that's all. But, but the words to the tune go back to the 7th century, the 600s. And the words were by the Celts. Celtic church. You think of Irish, early Scottish, Welsh. <laughs> and uh, yes, old Patrick, the, who's not, not Irish, who's British, and a... a, a uh, a missionary to Ireland after having first been a slave, but, but he was burdened to bring the gospel back to Ireland after he'd gotten his freedom, and, and God was with him. And, and that began not only the conversion of, of Ireland, but a missionary surge that preserved, I would argue, as a missiologist and, and professor of missions, preserved Christianity in Europe. Uh, between the great invasions by the uh, Moors in, uh, in, uh, when it was turned back in the 8th century and the, and the turning back of the Ottoman hordes at the gates of Vienna in the, fifth, in the uh, 16th and, and uh, 17th centuries. Now, that Celtic church was responsible together with their Saxon converts of bringing the gospel again and again to an invading Nordic host whose worldview was absolutely opposite of anything that would be Christian. They valued death in battle. They scorned mercy and any kind of gentleness and meekness. And the idea of, of a savior who as a God-man would allow himself willingly to be hanged upon a tree and killed by his enemies and die in the place of those who hated him made no sense to them. None. Missionaries, especially the Celtic missionaries, went. And they were slaughtered for their trouble. More would go. They would be killed or enslaved. They would stay with their message. Stay on theme. And for two centuries, the Vikings marauded. And then in the space of one generation, effectively, the Spirit of God swept in a people movement that resulted in the conversion, essentially, the conversion of the entire Viking lands. Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Iceland, in all the places they had then colonized in the British Isles and in the continent of Europe. And the cross you see in front of you every Sunday is a Celtic cross. It's a reminder that God moves even when 
it seems impossible. You think Al-Qaeda is impossible, that militant Islam can't be reached. Their worldview is too at odds with the gospel. It certainly is at odds. Is it too at odds? Is it impossible for the gospel to penetrate? I look at this little reminder and remember that my forebears came to Christ because there were those who would bring the gospel in the confidence that God works invincibly as a gracious and saving God. That's this morning's message is all about. It's a wonderful preparation for the Lord today. Next week, would you turn in our series on Jonah and you say, well, there's, uh, we're nearly done. Next week should be the last one. It isn't. <laughs> but there are only four chapters, yes. You're going to have two sermons in chapter four? No. Then where are we going? <laughs> well, I'll be away for my uh, granddaughter's graduation the following week, the 7th of June. Uh, you'll have a wonderful preacher that Sunday, so please come. But I'll be back the following week to finish it up in the sixth and final one in the series, and that will be from the gospel accounts on Jonah. We'll see what Jesus had to say. But for today, we have seen Jonah <laughs> beached at last, and, uh, and now he's, uh, he's ready and hears the word of God come to him, and that's where chapter 1 of verse 3 comes. We'll read the 10 verses of chapter 3. Hear then God's word. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, Taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he 
had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Thus far, in the word of the living God, let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, is there hope for us, for our nation, for our families? We turn to you, O compassionate God. Teach us from this episode in the life of your servant Jonah within the walls of Nineveh. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Ah, oh, I remember my friend saying, he'll never change. He'll never change. You've probably heard that saying often enough. Down deep, people don't change. Well, there is some truth to that in a way. Um, there's a bevy of self-help books, you know, out on the, they're among the best sellers every year uh, in, the, in the bookstores. How to do this, how to fix yourself that, up that way, how to do this better, uh, and so on. And I bought my share of them, I confess, and uh, I find mostly <laughs> uh, they don't help. <laughs> you see, God says through Jeremiah, he says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Oh, we can? No, we can't because I can't change my skin. If I were a leopard, I couldn't change my spots. I can't do good if I'm accustomed to doing evil because the problem's inside. It's out of my wicked heart that my wickedness comes. And I can't change my own heart just by thinking hard about it and trying to be positive. Power of positive thinking. That's not going to do it. It's going to effectuate an external, ephemeral, skin-deep, temporary change. Only God can change the heart. And in the passage before us, we're taught that God can change hearts. Hearts of stone to hearts of flesh that throb and reverberate in resonance with God's great heart. And God can bring life where death once prevailed. And this chapter, these 10 verses, teach us that God's word calls sinners to repentance and transforms the hardest of hearts. I'll say that again because it's the key truth. God's word calls sinners to repentance and transforms the hardest of hearts. And it teaches us that by looking at three particular dimensions of our condition. First, the judgment of God under which we stand. Second, the transformation which we need and only God can do. And finally, about the repentance that God calls us to on the basis of his grace at work in our hearts. So, judgment, transformation, and repentance. Let's consider them in turn. First, with respect to judgment, God's holy standards compel him to pronounce judgment on sin. This little book, it's only 48 verses. I hope you've been reading it as we've been going through our, our uh, series. Chapter 1, verse 1, God told Jonah to go and preach against 
Nineveh. Because its wickedness had come up before him. Here in chapter 3, we're told what it is he's supposed to preach. Yet 40 days, we're told, he was to say. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. Overturned. I had an acquaintance once who asserted, Oh, my God would never send anyone to hell. He would never retaliate against anyone, no matter what they did. He'd never bring judgment on any society. And I wondered at the time as I heard him speak, what kind of an insipid, inert God would that be? Who could look at someone mistreating a little child and say, it doesn't matter to me. I hope it matters to you. It matters to me. It matters to God. The reason it matters to you, if it matters to you, is because God cares. And he put that in your heart. That sense of rightness and oughtness. And there are other things as well. Things that we just wave off. Oh, I cheat on my income tax, so what? Everyone does. I'll never get caught. What does it matter? It matters because God is a God of truth. And we are to reflect his character. He is offended by falsehood. And in the book of Revelation, we're told that outside of the New Jerusalem are all liars. Don't know about you. But I can't say that in my nearly 70 years, I have never told a fib. Perhaps you can say that. I take my hat off. But I can't. And God's standard is absolute perfection. And then there are all these other things that God tells us about. He's pure. He's just. He's loving, and it's easy for me to be loving to people I like. It's not so easy for me to be loving to people I don't like. Oh, do you remember in the playground as a kid growing up? You can't be my friend if you're his friend, because I don't like it. What? And we want to treat God that way. We never grow up. But God's love never fails, never gives up never runs out on us. The God of the Bible is not morally neutral. He's neither unwilling nor unable to act in the face of evil. On the verge of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham could call God the judge of all the earth. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? We dare not enthrone an idol of our own making in his place, one who conveniently will not hold us to account. I love reading the Narnia Chronicles. Many of you read them as a child. I didn't, I didn't discover them until <laughs> I was uh, <clears throat> teaching at the Naval Academy as an adult, and I had little kids. I started reading them. I couldn't put them down, read through the night. Uh, I commend them to you, Narnia Chronicles. And the very first one, the lion, witch, and her wardrobe, you know, you're eventually introduced to the uh, Christ figure of the, of the series. And that's the great lion, Aslan. And, uh, and 
I think it's Lucy who, who hears about it from the Talking Beavers. It's a wonderful children's story, but it's great for adults as well. And, and she hears about Aslan she, as the lion, and she says, Oh, is he quite safe? And you remember the answer. Oh, no. She says, the, uh, He's not safe, but he's good. He's not a tame lion, you know. Tame lion. Something that we bend to our preferences. Come when we call you, go when we tell you. A lot of people want a God like that. A tame lion. And God won't be that. Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah. The lamb who is slain from before the foundation of the earth. And he is resplendent in his righteousness, his glory. See, God's announcement of judgment is unwavering. Verse 1, the message I gave you. It's not, okay, John, I'll meet you halfway. <laughs> you tell part of it and we'll call it even. No, no, no. It's the message he had given. It's unwavering. Uh, we're told uh, through the prophet Samuel as he answers Israel's first king, King Saul, uh, that God is not a man that he should repent or the son of man that he should change his mind. Now, God may relent based upon our responses to his work around us and in our lives so that his standards are satisfied in the way that he has ordained them to be. We'll see that in a moment. But God hasn't changed. God hasn't changed. His standards aren't malleable. And further... Um, it's therefore no good trying to get another opinion when it comes to God. <laughs> had a friend who, <clears throat> who had a very serious life-threatening disease and, and said, oh, I went to several doctors. I finally found one that told me I, wasn't, I didn't have anything to worry about. So I, I st stuck with that doctor, and I thought, ooh. <laughs> Was there more science? No, I just liked the, uh, <laughs> the diagnosis. Oh, boy. Uh, danger, danger. See, there is such a thing as truth. There's no good getting another opinion so that we can have something to choose instead of what God has told us. And God's announcement of imminent judgment then calls sinners to repent. Verse 4, 40 more days. 40 more days. Now hold on just a moment. How many countries did God pronounce judgment on but he never sent a prophet among them to tell them. God called down judgment on Babylon, but he never sent a prophet to tell them. He called down judgment on Egypt, but he never sent a prophet among them to tell them. He called down uh, judgment upon the capital cities of Moab and Ammon and of the Philistines, but he never sent a prophet among them, among them, to proclaim it, he sent prophets to his people to tell them what he was about to do and to cry out about those and against them. But not among them. Here he sends one of his own accredited, authenticated prophets who'd been at the court of Jeroboam II in Samaria, well-known internationally, I'm sure, and now especially with the notoriety of uh, what the fishermen had brought back and the stories that were extant about Jonah, and he comes into the city, and he comes as God's prophet 
40 more days. See, there's hope in that. Uh, if you would, you could turn with me to uh, Jer Jeremiah chapter 18. Just listen if you don't have your Bibles. Verses 7 and 8. God says through Jeremiah, if at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I have planned. A sovereign God can speak with implicit conditions and an implicit invitation of grace. Forty more days. Last week I mentioned that, you know, when our children were growing up and they were younger, they didn't always get along like perfect angels. And sometimes I'd hear this kind of commotion from uh, up above and I'd holler out, uh, okay, you kids, quiet down. And the commotion keep going. All right, I'm coming up in about one minute. Got very quiet. <laughs> and I didn't have to go up. Well, you should have gone up. No, implicit in that. Kids understood <laughs> that if their behavior didn't change, what would follow would be invariable. <laughs> and, uh, and that's what's the picture here. God says, 40 days. And the Ninevites do the unexpected. And that, you see, is the next point. God's announcement of imminent justice not only um, calls sinners to repent, but does so for a reason. In, to the, to uh, the Roman believers, the apostle Paul writes uh, in chapter 2, in verses 4 and 5, um, do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God's announcement of his imminent justice, judgment calls sinners to repentance. That's judgment. We need to understand that it's real. It's there because God's real. He's there. His standards are real. He made us and holds us to account. We can't escape that. Ah, but then there's hope. Hope of transformation. Second point. God's word, you see, can transform hearts of stone. Verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. Now, I want you to notice something here. It's not that they believed in God, and certainly not that they believed in Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. They just believed what God had said. That's what they believed. They believed that much. There's no historic documentation of Yahweh worship being in a bastion for a prolonged period of time in the capital of the Assyrian Empire. No, there's not that. But what you see is an empire on the ropes that has a reprieve. And, and in, that, uh, in that vein, I would just like to note in 1 Kings chapter 21 <clears throat> what the Word of God reminds us about the most wicked king up to his time, King Ahab in the northern kingdom. 
uh, 1 Kings 21, verses 24 through 29, after particularly heinous injustice by uh, King Ahab and his wicked wife, a Sidonian Baal worshiper named Jezebel. And in verse 24 we read, God saying, Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. Now, verse 27. When Ahab, this wicked, wicked man, when Ahab heard these words, God's judgment, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. Does that sound familiar? Jonah chapter 3, the Ninevites. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. There was a temporary reprieve. Well, why not forgiveness? Well, because... As we read later in the story of Ahab, his heart hadn't been changed. But there was a temporal repentance from temporal judgment. And God gave temporary reprieve based upon that. I think that's something of what we have in Jonah chapter 3. And uh, I'll uh, carry on with that a little bit more detail, uh, perhaps next uh, Lord's Day. Uh, but, but the same thing happens with Saul. He humbles himself and outwardly repents, and, and uh, God, for a time, removes his hand of, of uh, chastening from Saul. But Saul's heart, Saul's heart is not, still not right with God. And he, the night before he dies, he's consorting with a spirit medium, calling up the dead or trying to. Saul, Ahab, both wicked men who died, in my view, in their sin. And yet God, in his mercy, relented when they humbled themselves, even tempor uh, temporally, uh, in the eyes of God. But transformation, true transformation, only comes from God. God's word can transform hearts of stone. Even the temporal repentance requires tremendous work of restraint by the Holy Spirit of God. Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. And then verse 8, let everyone call urgently on God that he might turn and relent. Uh, the the um, New Testament, or rather Old Testament scholar Gleason Archer and a number of others has, has uh, related the dire circumstances of Nineveh under King Asherdan III. 
Um, they'd had, uh, they'd been going through a time of, of dynastic succession struggles. And, uh, you know, different sons of the deceased king would, often from different mothers, would vibe with one another as to who would uh, become the new king. And meanwhile, uh, the vassal states, uh, their kings would break away and uh, uh, try to make a, a, a run for freedom. And, uh, and right about that same time, there, there was uh, a, a, a famine in the land because of drought, followed by huge monsoon-like rains years later that just washed everything out and, and left them worse than they were before and bred disease. And they had pestilence and plague. And, and they had invasions from the Mongol-related tribes called the Scythians down from the north. They were in a bad way. Uh, right around 763 B.C., uh, they'd have been in an especially bad way, and that's the year that, uh, that uh, Gleason Archer dates the book, the events of the book of, Daniel, of uh, Jonah. Now, I'm not sure if that was exactly the year or not, but if it were, that's fascinating. Because you, can you imagine that this Jonah now comes into this capital city whose wickedness we described in our first of our series, um, the wickedness of, of Nineveh where the Assyrians had made an art of war by terror. They would make examples of the cities they conquered. I won't go into the gruesome details of how every man, woman, and child was treated. Terrible, the things that they would do. The injustices between the social classes were horrible. And in the midst of this, in the midst of this, for Jonah to walk in, and no sooner does he begin to preach, it would have taken him three days to go to key places in the city and proclaim. Uh, he just starts. Doesn't have to do anymore. Just obey God and begin. God does all the rest. In fact, he even got Jonah to do the first step, didn't he? And here you have a mass movement, you think. How could that have happened? Well, remember how God, through circumstances, has prepared this people. They're wondering when the next shoe will drop. And this is a city that is dedicated to a, a, a heavenly a being, a divinity, a start, uh, a goddess, a star goddess. And, and, um, and right in the midst <laughs> of... Jonah's preaching, if it happened on June 15th of 763, there was a total eclipse of the sun at Nineveh. Now, those don't happen very often in one particular place. They happen just about every year if you can chase it all over the world to find out where it's going to be. But for it to happen in your backyard is something you have to wait many years for. Happened that day. I can just imagine that the mass hysteria that would have accompanied that, Joan beginning to preach and then that happening. But make no mistake, make no mistake, apart from the work of God's Spirit in the hearts even of the Ninevites, even then, they would not have repented of their evil deeds. How do I know that? Look at the book, the last book of the Bible, book of Revelation, and God sends judgment after judgment in that narrative of what is to come. And it says, even then, hearts of men were hardened and they would not 
repent. See, heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The scripture says. God had to move and he did. God's word can humble the most resistant. Verse 5, they declared a fast. Verse 6, the king sat down in the dust. By the way, he didn't lead that. He kind of caught the tail end of it. The movement reached him. It was a grassroots movement. A people movement with no, uh, no class distinctions. And it's God's word that can break the cycle of sin and violence. Verse 8, let them give up their evil ways and their violence is the call of the king. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, uh, the second name Deuteronomy means in, in, in the Greek of this translation of the Hebrew, the second law. And it's because the law is given in chapter uh, 5 of, of Deuteronomy uh, a second time to the Israelites uh, who are about to enter the promised land. The first one having been given to their parents soon after they had exited Egypt. And that was 38 years before at Mount Sinai. The first giving in Exodus 20 and the second giving, if you will, same law, to their, their uh, next generation in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And in verse 9 we read, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. <sighs> Don't stop. And showing mercy to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. God can break the cycle. Um, one of the things we've discovered the hard way is that those who are abused as children are more likely to abuse children when they grow up. It's a horrible truth. But God is able to break the cycle. And here, God moves in Nineveh. Now maybe you're here today and you think, I'm not a Ninevite. I've never uh, torn apart a pregnant woman. I've never taken a, taken a young, young man and, and impaled him on a stake. I've never burned a whole family alive in their home uh, as I've shut the doors around them and built it into a funeral pile. I've never done those things the Ninevites had. The Assyrian Empire was known for those things. I've never done those things. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a little more savable than the Ninevites. Friend, than you have missed the point. Because the relative injustices of any one of us to any one other of us compared to our infraction and, and um, abuse of the holiness of God, the incursion we've made upon who he is and what he has a right to expect from his people Oh, that, that distance is far, far greater. Far greater. When Jesus says, he who has been forgiven much will love much. He didn't mean that you who are better than somebody else, he was speaking to a Pharisee in whose house he was eating. He wasn't saying, well, you didn't have as much to be forgiven. And so, of course, you don't love as much. That's not what he was saying. He was saying, you don't get it, do you, Simon? She understands her sin. You just don't. Because you don't have a 
high enough, a grand enough vision of God. When we do, everything else begins to snap into perspective. Rahab, the harlot at Jericho, her life was spared and she was, would have been, you'd think, twice under the ban, the condemnation of, of death. First, because she's a Canaanite, presumably. And second, because she's a prostitute. But she believed God. She concealed the Hebrew spies. They gave, in the name of Jehovah, a commitment to spare her life. And God said, be sure you do. And you next see her in the lineage of someone named Boaz. <laughs> hmm, yes, well, he's the husband of a Moabitess named Ruth, who herself was outside, a people group outside the covenant of God initially. And down through history, we'll find her name. Where? In Luke's gospel, in the lineage of Jesus. And not only there, you will find it in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 in the hall of fame of faith. Rahab, commended for her faith. Her life wasn't something she could say, I'm a pretty good person, you should, you should forgive me because my good deeds outweigh my bad. She didn't do that. She clung to the God who offered mercy. And that's the only way we can come to God. Mao Zedong in the 1960s, the ruler of, uh, uh, of the People's Republic of China, Communist China, he'd come to power. He launched his uh, red brigades throughout all of China, and they went around, and even Communist Party officials, high officials, were grabbed and pulled out of their, their uh, offices and right in front of their guards uh, because, by mobs of young students, armed students, uh, and, and uh, humiliated and then shot. And Mao's purpose was to obliterate all the culture up until his little red book and his uh, Marxist-Leninist doctrine. Got to get rid of the transmission of ideas. And Pol Pot did the same thing with his Khmer Rouge communists in Cambodia the next decade. Same thing. Anybody who had an education, they're marked for death. Doesn't matter. And a child of those people, they're marked for death. Why? Make sure that you extirpate any possible transmission of culture except that which we consider pure, ideologically pure, by our definition. We are the definer of it, they said. You know what? They both failed. They both failed to break the transmission of what they thought was cultural contamination as they perceived it. But the gospel can and often does radically transform families and societies. We've spoken of the Vikings. Their culture was radically transformed. Friend, you can come to God as you are with all your personal and family baggage and he'll take your life and remake it, conforming it over time into a reflection of Christ, as the Apostle John says in his first epistle, in this life we are like him. Why? It's motivated out of love. That's the transformation.
that God makes. And that brings us to our final point, repentance. God's mercy extends to the penitent. Verse 10, God had compassion. Why? Well, first, understand that God's grace is to be sought, not demanded. Verse 9, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Grace is never owed. God is never our debtor, and repentance does not merit us God's mercy. Repentance and faith are ever the means, not the grounds, for our salvation. I, I've heard evangelists say, if you repent and believe, you, you will be born again. That's not true. The Bible doesn't say that. Does that surprise you? It says, if you repent and believe, you'll be saved. That's true. But it doesn't say, repent and, and believe and you'll be born again. Why does it not say it that way? Because it's back to front. We can't repent and believe until God's Spirit, through His Word, works a change in our heart and exchanges the stony heart that Ezekiel speaks of for a, a living, fleshy heart that, that will together beat with God's. And then the first thing that changed heart does is repent and believe. A baby's not alive because it cries. It cries because it's alive and has been born. And so it is with us. God's mercy moves him to spare the repentant from destruction. Verse 10, God did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Paul, the apostle, writes, I tell you, now is the day of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Jesus himself said, come to me, all you that labor, and I'll give you rest. And he said, he that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Maybe the barrier for you today isn't how bad you are that you think God couldn't take you. You could see how God might accept, even in his mercy, even a reach down to the Ninevites, and next week we'll see that there was a tougher heart of stone than that. Whose was that? Come back next week and we'll talk about it. But perhaps today your problem is that I'm not as bad as that. I'm a pretty good person. I really don't need God to forgive me much, just a little. If he'll take care of this and that in my life and, and leave me alone in the places he's pestering me from his word, um, you know, I'll have a nice, comfortable Christianity. God never calls us to comfortable Christianity. What about you, friend? or members of your family, your neighborhood and city, those most hardened to the gospel, whether atheists in the college classroom or Al-Qaeda in the Middle East, are not immune from the power of the gospel. We may pray for them, love them, and faithfully share God's word with them. In the end, neither their enmity toward God nor our inadequacy to articulate the gospel can or will prevent God from bringing revival to perishing hearts when, where, and how he pleases. Our responsibility is by his grace to love the Lord our God with all our being and ensure that we are trusting in Christ alone for our own salvation and then to trust to love those around us in turn. Enough to share the life-giving and life-transforming good news about Jesus with them. 
Yes, we desperately need a national revival and reformation today. Such a revival and reformation always begins with us. The Scripture reminds us, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And with Habakkuk of old, we cry, O Lord, revive your works in the midst of the years. In wrath, remember mercy. Amen. Let's pray.